Please turn with me to uh, our scripture reading today from 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, we're going to uh, be considering in the weeks to come this letter from the Apostle Paul to his young apprentice and fellow minister, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And here we end this reading of God's word. Today we're going to look at the first uh, two verses of this passage. Next week we'll take up the rest of this passage. Uh, Isn't it interesting that after the greeting, Paul gets right down to business. (laughs) I left you in Ephesus so that you could command certain men not to teach strange doctrines. First order of business for Paul and Timothy. But we're going to have to wait till next week to get into that. Today we're going to look at the greeting. Paul always had a greeting in his letters, and it was often formulated in such a way that uh, obviously he's writing this letter as Paul the Apostle, and he, he has in this greeting a blessing uh, uh, that he uh, conveys to the recipient of the letter. In this case, the recipient of the letter is a young man named Timothy. And Timothy has been uh, following Paul for some time now uh, on his journeys But we have to ask ourselves a couple questions. What is the purpose of this letter? What is the purpose of this letter? Well, there is a a passage later on in the letter where Paul does give the reason why he's writing this letter to Timothy. 
He says this, I hope to come to you soon. This is 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I hope I'm going, I'm hope. In God's providence, I'm going to be able to come to you, Timothy, and we'll be able to work again together uh, in this church. But if I can't come right away, if there's a delay, I'm writing you this letter so that you know how you should behave, what you should be doing, how you should act, what is the, what is the, the, the purpose of your ministry in the church, which is the household of God the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church's ministry is a household of God. The church's work is to uphold and strengthen and provide the support and the foundation for the truth of God's word. This is why Paul is writing. But there's a second question. Why are we going to study 1 Timothy in the weeks to come, where I have opportunity to, to preach to you. Why are we going to study 1 Timothy? Well, it is, of course, Paul's instruction to a young minister, and he gives us insight into what this minister ought to do and how he should live and how he should work and what are the priorities of his ministry but it's also a significant time in the history of this church as you're looking for a new pastor. And so this letter also instructs us in what to look for. What should we be seeking in, a, in the next pastor that comes to this church? This is inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired instruction to Timothy, but it's broader than Timothy, it's to the whole church. And it not only tells Timothy what he should do, but it tells the church what it should look for in a pastor. I think surveys are good, and you took a survey, which is a kind of a, a, a little uh, temperature reading on the congregation. And all that's well and good, but your search for a pastor, your search needs to be guided by the Word preeminently. The Word of God needs to guide your search for a pastor. Its priorities need to be our priorities. Its values, its teachings need to form the criteria by which you make your, your decision about the next chapter. So it's my hope that as we go through this letter uh, that we will gain insight into what God wants for your new pastor and what, what God thinks your new pastor should look like. That's the real question, isn't it? It's also clear, too, that Paul is not just writing to Timothy, but he's writing to the church. That's it, perhaps the first clue in that is that Paul uses his traditional uh, introduction. Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy my true son in the faith. Timothy already knows this about Paul. Timothy has no questions about who Paul is. 
But Paul has had a problem throughout much of his ministry in that there have been many people who have challenged Paul's apostolic ministry. You're not really one of the, one of the original followers of Jesus. You came along after the fact. You, you're not really an apostle. And Paul has had to spend quite a bit of time through the years defending his apostolic ministry. He doesn't have to do that with Timothy. This is the first clue that this letter also is intended for the broader church, and it's intended for us, because it's been included in the scriptures. As the, as the canon of scripture has come together, this letter is included as an instruction for not just young ministers, but instruction for the church. First thing we're going to do today in looking at this passage, though, is just review a brief history of Paul and Timothy's relationship. Paul and Timothy, a brief history of these two men and the relationship that God brought about between them. The first part of Timothy's ministry with Paul, you might say, is is that of a young apprentice, an apprentice. We train ministers differently today than they did back then. Sometimes I, I wonder if it would be good to maybe go back a bit. Actually, we have gone back a bit toward that way because we require internships now. Uh, when I was being ordained to the ministry, that was not a requirement. You just needed your seminary degree. You needed to pass your exams, and you needed a call, and then you were ordained as a minister. Now you have to have... an internship where you're actually working in a church with another pastor uh, under his his, uh, uh, instruction and oversight. And that's a good thing. Timothy didn't go to a formal seminary. All of his training was with people who were instructors, yes, but also involved in the ministry, primarily Paul. We find Timothy first mentioned in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Uh, The writer of the book of Acts, Dr. Luke, says this, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and uh, Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Well, there's this reference to the meeting in Jerusalem that is in Acts chapter 15. Uh, Paul had been sent out uh, to, uh, as part of his work as a, as a missionary, to uh, tell the churches of the decision of the Council of Jerusalem regarding uh, the Gentiles that were coming to, the faith, to faith and coming into the church. Should the Gentiles be circumcised? Do they need to be circumcised in order to believe, in order to be welcomed into the church? And the church of Jerusalem met and, and said, no, they don't. Uh, but this decision then needed to be spread through the other churches. And that was Paul's ministry at this time. That was part of his ministry. So uh, Timothy now is uh, someone that Paul uh, meets in, um, 
in his travels. Uh, two towns are named Derby, Lystra, and then also actually three, Iconium. Isn't it interesting, as you read this passage, Timothy is already working, isn't he? Timothy's already showing something. Uh, Paul sees him, that Timothy's already a believer. He has been taught the faith from his mother, whose uh, name we find in another place in the Bible, uh, who is uh, Eunice. And his grandmother has also helped teach him the faith. Her name is Lois. So he comes from a line of believers The only thing we ever hear about Timothy's father is that he was a Greek. We don't know that he was a believer. Probably not. It would would have been made sense to be mentioned if he was a believer. But we know that his grandmother and his mother were believers, and Timothy was already a believer. He wasn't converted by Paul, but he was called by Paul into the ministry. Timothy already had a good reputation among the people that knew him as someone who is was was involved in the work of ministry. <coughs> and when Paul meets him, Paul wants him to accompany, Paul wants Timothy to accompany him and to uh, begin the work of an apprentice as, uh, as, as a fellow worker with, with Paul. That's where we're introduced to Timothy. And for a time, Timothy simply travels around with Paul on his missionary journeys, assisting him, learning uh, from him, observing. Boy, that's, the, that's kind of the most basic thing that an apprentice does. Observe. Watch. Learn. Be instructed, but observe, observe, observe. And, and then slowly start to put it into practice uh, yourself. As Timothy grows in his experience as an apprentice under the Apostle Paul, he also has a period of time where he serves as Paul's emissary. Paul couldn't be everywhere at once. There were many churches that Paul had been involved in in planting. There were other churches that Paul hadn't planted, but that he was caring for and writing to and wanted to visit on his journeys, but he couldn't get to all of them uh, at the same time. So he had younger men go as his emissaries. Timothy is one of them. Titus is another one. Other men are mentioned in the scriptures, in the book of Acts, and in some of the epistles as serving in this capacity, going to other churches, representing Paul uh, as, as his emissary, as his, uh, if you will, ambassador. Uh, uh, Paul would often send the letters to these churches through these men. They didn't have the United States Postal Service. They had to rely on giving a letter to someone who was headed in that direction. They might have to hand that letter off to someone else who might have to hand it to... But eventually, it would get to the destination. Wow. Things happened back then a lot slower. Now we just dash off an email or a text. Instantaneous. I got to tell you, sometimes I wonder if that's altogether an improvement. Because you had to think about what you were writing. Oh, actually, I've got one up here. But thank you. I might, I might need to. Hold, up, hold on to that. I might need it. <laughs> Hit the spot there. There are references in the book of Acts and the epistles of Paul 
that show that Timothy was sent by Paul to Corinth, Thessalonica, Ephesus, and some other congregations. In these, he seems to be a representative of Paul the Apostle. He reports back to Paul on the condition of these churches. Timothy is mentioned in all but three of Paul's letters. Did you know that? All but three of Paul's letters mention Timothy in some respect. He's also mentioned toward the end of Hebrews as having recently been released from prison. We don't know that he was with Paul in prison or whether he was in prison by himself. He's also mentioned in four of Paul's letters as a co-author to the church at, fill in the blank, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. He's mentioned along with Paul as an author of the letter. Now, Paul was the apostle, but Timothy, as his apprentice, as his, as his representative, and also now coming into his own as a teacher and a pastor of churches, is still working with Paul. So we have these three areas. He's uh, an apprentice, a representative, and also now as a pastor and teacher himself. Timothy was not the perfect man. Perhaps that should be in our minds as well. There is no perfect pastor. Timothy, and and we gather this from, from several references that Paul makes that indicate to us that Timothy did have a particular challenge. As a young man and going up against a lot of problematic people, he seems to be somewhat timid. He seems to be maybe not entirely sure of himself, maybe a little reticent uh, to get involved. And so Paul, in several letters, in several places, he encourages Timothy to move forward. Don't Well, here's an example. 1 Timothy 4, verses 12 through 16. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scriptures, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let no one despise you because of your youth. And perhaps that is maybe one of the challenges that Timothy faced. He was still a young man. And, you know, it's... It's something we don't often think about, but as you read Scripture, the book of Acts and, and Paul's letters and so forth, you realize that almost immediately in the New Testament era, as churches are being planted, as they're growing, churches are being attacked by false teachers. Almost immediately. We're still in the middle of the apostolic age, and there are heresies and false teachers coming into the churches all over the place. And the church has to be defended. The truth has to be defended. Well, Timothy, who are you? You're still a young pipsqueak, hardly wet, still wet behind the ears. Why should we listen to you? Let no one despise your youth. 
Set them an example of the serious kind of ministry and pastoral care that God requires. Set them an example in sound teaching. Give yourself to the public reading of the scriptures. Forget the wild speculations of the Gnostics and and the Judaizers and all of those people. Give yourself to the public reading of scripture. The word is its own powerful sword. Give yourself to exhortation. Preach the word. Preach it straight. That's what you should do. And that's the foundation of your confidence. It doesn't matter whether you're an old guy like me or a young man like Timothy. If your ministry is focused on the word, no one should be critical. We're all called to submit to the word. So those are three aspects of Paul's relationship to Timothy. Paul refers to Timothy in this fatherly greeting that we have read. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. What a greeting. What a, what a way of describing Timothy. My true child in the faith. Yes, it was kind of a father-son relationship that these, they had. Timothy had been taught by Paul. He was first taught by his grandmother and mother. I am remembered of your sincere faith, Paul wrote, that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. That's one aspect of Timothy as a true child in the faith for Paul. Timothy, in the experience that he has had leading up to the writing of this epistle, has proven himself in his travels with Paul and his ministry in churches as a faithful servant. Again, maybe not perfect, but faithful. I find great comfort in the fact that you could be faithful, but not perfect. If perfection was the standard of faithfulness, well, you know, let's clear the building because none of us, none of us measures up there. But Paul writes in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Uh, boy, there's, okay, mark this on your list of qualities that you're looking for. Someone who is genuinely concerned for your spiritual welfare. Someone who is genuinely concerned. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. There's Paul's commendation of Timothy as a son with a father. That's why he refers to him in 1 Timothy as my true spiritual, my true son, my true child in the faith. Over and over again in these letters to Timothy and also to Titus, what we call the pastoral epistles, over and over we find 
instruction to maintain the truth of biblical teaching and resist errors. To maintain in faithfulness the what Paul calls the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. Over and over and over again, we find this. And so Timothy, as a true son in the faith, must keep the faith that has been given to him, that has been transmitted to him as a, a sacred trust. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy. Here's a, there's, you know, this isn't just Timothy. This is, oh, Timothy. There's a, a passion. There is a fatherly passion here, a godly passion behind the words that follow. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Avoid the controversies with what is falsely called knowledge. Guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. That is part of Timothy, my true child in the faith. As part of this introductory greeting, Paul also, in a powerful way, talks about a command and a blessing. A command and a blessing. Let's reread that again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now think about that. Think about this command. By the way, even though Paul does not apply this command to Timothy, it still has an application to Timothy, and it has an application to ministers today. I'll get to that in a minute. But Paul was literally commanded by God and Jesus Christ to be an apostle on the road to Damascus. Sitting in Damascus, wrestling with his eyesight, he was blind, hearing the words of a servant of God, telling him that God had great plans for him, and hearing Christ himself call him to be an apostle. Paul literally is an apostle by the command. But look at, the, look at how he, he addresses this, or he talks about his command. It has a source in God, our Savior. Now, in, in that reference, of course, he's referring to the Father, he's, because he distinguishes between God, our Savior, and Christ, our hope. He's making that distinction, and so we understand that God, our Savior, is a reference to the Father. Why would he call God our Savior? God the Father, the Savior. We, we usually call Christ the Savior, right? He shall save his people from their sins. We're celebrating that this time of year. Because God is the originator. God, yes, Jesus is the Savior in that he executed and accomplished God's plan. But God is the Savior in that it is his plan. It is the Father who originates. It's the Father who decrees. It's the Father who is, who is the preeminent person of the triune God in these 
original acts. We, we see the same thing in creation, where it is God who decrees, but the Bible, as it explains more deeply what creation or how creation was accomplished, tells us that it was the Son who created all things. It was the Son who was the efficient cause of creation, but he was executing the Father's plan. In that regard, then, the Father is our Savior. It is the plan that was given to Christ to accomplish. But notice he refers, the command has come also from Christ. And usually Paul says, Christ our Lord. And he does when he refers this to Timothy. But isn't it interesting, he says, Christ our hope. Our hope. Jesus, Christ Jesus, our hope. Why is Christ Jesus our hope? Well, as I said before, he's the one who's accomplished the plan. When the time was right, God sent forth his son to redeem those. who He was born of a woman, and he came to those who were under the law. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He is our hope because his work has been accomplished. He is our hope because he is the one who has fulfilled all righteousness for us. He is our hope because not only fulfilling all righteousness, but then suffering as our sin offering, as our substitute. This is our our doctrine of the atonement. That Christ didn't just die because the Pharisees and and the Romans didn't like him. He died according to the plan of the Father to take our sins and our guilt upon himself and to give us his righteousness. When we believe, we are justified. Just like Abraham, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. When we believe in Christ, it is counted to us as righteousness and he is our hope. My hope is built... What? What's the next line? My hope is built than there you go. That's it. And this command has come to Paul through God the Father, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. As he moves to Timothy, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the Father is the originator. Grace, mercy, and peace come from the Father's decree, through the Father's decree, but they come through the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. There's a, you know, Two of the Gospels have the Christmas story, the story of Christ's birth. Mark doesn't. John has the theological meaning of the incarnation, but Matthew and Luke have the story of the incarnation. Did you also know there's a, there's a Christmas story in the book of Hebrews? There is. When God brought his son into the world, he commanded his angels to worship him. What does it mean 
for grace, mercy, and peace to come through us from the Father's plan and ordination to Christ's mediatorial role and applied to us, I might say, by the Holy Spirit. Why was it necessary for the incarnation to happen? The writer of Hebrews tells us that in order to be a faithful high priest, in order to be our Savior, Jesus Christ had to be made like his brothers. And that's, by the way, an all-inclusive term. Ladies, you're part of the brotherhood. (laughs) And it says this, Therefore he is not ashamed to call him, to call them his brothers. Do you begin to see the this is the fountain of grace, mercy, and peace. That Christ is our brother. He the only begotten son, and we the adopted children. There's a, another verse that the writer of Hebrews quotes, and, he, and it's, a, it's a verse that describes Jesus presenting his people to the Father. And it's this verse, and it says, Here I am, here am I, and the children you have given me. Here am I, Christ is depicted in this verse as standing in the presence of his Father, presenting to the Father his church, his bride, his brothers and sisters. Here I am and the children you have given me. They're your children, Father, but I have saved them. I have redeemed them from every tribe, every language, every nation upon the face of the earth, and now I present them as your children, made perfect in holiness to you. This is ultimate grace, mercy, and peace that has come to us by the Father's plan and by the work of the Son. Well, I'm going to move on quickly. Well, it's too late to say quickly, isn't it? What what are some of the insights we can gain from this passage into a character of a minister? There's first this. He lives and works as one who is under the command of God. Paul said, I'm an apostle by the command of God the Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And yes, we're not apostles, we don't have the apostolic office, but we are still men under command. And that needs to be reflected in the way we approach our ministry. That means, in part, one of the applications of that is that a true minister of God will not be thinking of himself first. He will not be thinking of his status, and the respect that is due his office. Okay, I got to depart here a second. And and believe me, my wife is going to nail me for this afterwards. There's a a, a spreading fashion that ministers must wear robes in the pulpit. 
And the rationale is that by wearing robes, we are reminding the people of our office. As if you forgot from last week? Really? Paul wrote about his apostolic work. He said, and people were challenging. Again, Paul had to defend himself. And he wrote this to the Corinthians because he had been challenged by certain people in the church. You're not really an apostle. Where are your letters of introduction? Where are the signs of your office? And you know what Paul wrote to the Corinthians? You are my letter. Now, what he's saying to the Corinthians is this. The evidence of God's work among you is the evidence of my office. Let that, not a robe, the evidence of my office, the evidence of any pastor's office is not a piece of cloth that he wears. It is the quality of his ministry that he performs and the blessing of God on that ministry. He lives as one who is under command, and that ought to be evident to the congregation. He evidences the blessings of grace, mercy, and peace. Even though Timothy is going to be involved in lots of controversies, just as Paul was, he needs to be a man of peace himself. He needs to be a peacemaker because he has been brought to a status of peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The grace, mercy, and peace that God blesses his servants with, and that is you too, ought to flow from that man to the congregation and be evident in his ministry. And finally this. A true minister, the minister that you need to have, has to have de- de- uh, demonstrated in his work, whether that's a long work or a short work, but whatever it is, it has to have demonstrated that he is a true son in the faith. A faithful man. Paul says, I don't have anyone like Timothy who will have a concern for your welfare. Timothy, guard the deposit that has been given to you. Timothy, show them an example of a godly minister. Show them an example by reading the scriptures publicly, by exhortation, by doing all those aspects of your ministry, and thus showing that you are a true son in the faith. Those are things you need to look for, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you instruct us in your word and what a great blessing it is. We are not left to ourselves to wonder about these things, but we are instructed and and we pray that you would give us eyes that see clearly the instruction and hearts that are ready to accept it. We pray, Father, that uh, for this congregation, as it looks for a new pastor, we pray that you would guide that search by your word and by spirit-opened eyes uh, in that word. 
For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.